So these people who had suffered mightily, they don't know what to think about God. They're angry. They're angry with God, maybe. They're angry with the world. They're angry with people. It's like, no matter what you've done, I don't understand it, but I'm still in love. Whether I like it or not, I'm still in love. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. Thanks for tuning in to In Good Faith. I'm here in the studio today with our senior producer, Heather Bigley. Hello. And also student producer on this project, Leah King. Hello. And I think we've got a really interesting episode because we are combining two different speakers, two different interviewees. We start with Lucy Bregman from Brown University. And we speak with her from her home in Philadelphia. And then in the second half, Dr. Howard Wettstein from his home in California. And I think you'll be interested in how these two intermesh. So first of all, Leah, why Lucy Bregman? Yeah, so I read her publication, Preaching Death, the Transformation of American Protestant Funeral Sermons. And it was interesting how she talked about in the last 100 years how much change there have been in these funeral services. And also, I thought it was interesting that she was a Christian convert herself. So we see the change and how religion influenced her life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I was really surprised at how much funerals had changed over the (laughs) years. So she starts off really with saying, I think they were kind of grim. We today would say they were grim. Maybe 100 years ago, like, this person has died as we all do, and you sitting here are the future dead, and are you ready? And so this whole idea that the people from 100 years ago would go to the funerals or Protestant funerals today and might be appalled at what's this whole focus on the minor element of the person who we're holding this for. Today, we tend to make these be celebrations of the life of the person. Right. And she does address why that actually might be a problem, too. So she's going to open up with a discussion of how she came to this as an academic topic. Yeah. Imagine that your course you're assigned is death and dying for college students. (laughs) Are we ready to dive in to Dr. Lucy Bregman? Let's do it. So it wasn't that I had some specially memorable traumatic experience with death, but Simultaneous with starting to teach this course, I'm a Christian convert. So I was exploring at a personal level what it meant to be Christian and how the roles of death and imagery for death played into that. At the same time, I was teaching a course where the first reading every single semester is Elizabeth Kubler-Ross on Death and Dying. And that book, which was published in 1969, set the agenda for what I have called the death awareness movement, the modern death and dying educational, practical research agenda. So almost all the popular writings and a lot of the professional writings really begin 1968-69 as Kubler-Ross's date. Almost the same time the concept of hospice developed in England was brought to the United States. So those two events really set a new language, a new kind of set of ideas images and practices surrounding death and grieving, bereavement. And over the years, it became clear that the religious material was really disconnected from this new, this newer approach, that there was almost like this gigantic gap between what in a world religions mode, you talk about what Muslims believe what Christians, what Buddhists believe. It was apparent that the death awareness movement agenda, which puts a lot of emphasis on death is natural and we should accept it, and death is a loss. Mm. That this was where students' hearts, minds, and souls were really at. I mean, people could relate to that. Anything different than that felt strange to them. And along with that, 
goes the assumption that back in the nostalgic small town past, people accepted death and it was a natural part of life. And I finally realized that this nostalgic picture needed to be really questioned by looking at what did people really say and think about death, and particularly what did Christians really think about death? And the one occasion where there were formal requirements to do something with death was with funerals. So that's why I started to look at what was said at mainstream Protestant Christian funerals about death. Did they really say that death is natural and we should accept it? And what I discovered was they didn't. Instead, there were a lot of things said about death. And if the sermons, I must have read thousands of them in various anthologies, if those were any indication of what at least the more official, say, mainstream American Protestant understanding of death was, not even the stodgiest, most conservative congregation today could sit through those sermons without getting up and throttling the preacher. <laughs> they were unbelievably out of a world where the funeral is to remind everybody that they're the future dead. Rather than comfort anyone. But real comfort comes from learning that, from the words of one very vivid example, last week he was in his office, today we bury him. <sighs> Are you prepared for the world to come? Mm. Everybody was addressed as the future dead. The shift is the people who are at the funeral are the current mourners. They need comfort. They need meaning. They need to have a sense of a life, maybe not always well-lived, but a life concluded. That would have been considered totally tacky in 1920, for instance. Tacky because the point of the funeral was not the biography of the person who has died. That would have been considered minor and irrelevant. The point was a theological point. And the view of death was that heaven is our home. All sorts of poems, stories, analogies with the first home that people remembered from childhood all that was invoked incessantly. No death wasn't a negative. Mourning happens, but it has no religious meaning whatsoever and was mostly discounted. And you get a whole lot of sermons for the dead children where they're better off playing with Jesus in heaven because they didn't live to become adults and engage in serious sin. It's so interesting to me to have this image in my mind that progress is always forward and for the best, and that we figure things out better as we go through time. But I'm wondering, was there something in that, what might sound like just a brutal reality slap in the face, that was healthy? You, do you see both good and bad in that shift? When all the emphasis was on heaven, and very elaborate home-like images of heaven. What got repressed is the grief and disruption and loss. Mm. And even deaths that we would consider unbelievably tragic were treated. <laughs> First of all, they were all God's will. 200 people die in a mind disaster, but it's God's will. And there was not a lot of room for anything like the experiences of grief that death disrupts. Poetry was read at these sermons, which focused 
on how eager people are to join their dead family members. Even the picture of Jesus that emerged in these sermons was Jesus was always homesick for his father's home. In other words, he lived and did everything he did, really aware that he was missing his heavenly home. Now, I should say my own personal faith focus makes the death and resurrection of Jesus really central, not just in terms of physical dying, but in terms of a pattern for living. How did that affect how you how you live your life? Well, I think it affected the sense that as a convert, I knew that there were things that were left over that had never been truly buried with Christ in the tomb, that had never been baptized, so to speak. And it took me several years to be able to formulate or even begin the idea that conversion is not an all-at-once thing, Mm. but it is gradually letting go and in some ways letting pieces of oneself die with Jesus to be raised by him. And I take that really as a central theme. Now, I should be very grateful to others who have written about that in the context of funerals today. So a really good way to put how that kind of focus fits into what I believe funerals, Christian funerals, ought to be doing is the death and resurrection of Jesus is the big story. A guy named Robert Krieg wrote an essay on this, and I'm quoting from him. The big story is what happened to Jesus. Mm. The little story is the story of the life of the person who died. And the point of the funeral, and especially the funeral service, is to link those two in a meaningful, comprehensible whole. You've just answered one of my next questions, which was, If you were asked to speak at a funeral, what would you say? And I think this is what you're talking about. Fortunately for everybody who might have been there, I have not presided at a funeral. (laughs) I have been at funerals where this was done very, very well and meaningfully. But unfortunately, with the death awareness movement's agenda focused on grieving. Along with that came the idea that the purpose of a funeral is to celebrate the life of the person. Now, that would be the little story. But the little story in many of the funerals and memorials I've been at just swallows up the whole event. And also, the goal of the little story now being to celebrate the life in all its details. Loving tributes by family members, poems written by grandchildren, and videos of the dead person are quite appropriate, given that new model of what a funeral is. The realities of the little story won't automatically fall into place in within that larger framework. Funerals for suicides, for instance, have always been difficult, but the reasons now are different than they used to be. This is In Good Faith. We'll be right back. Welcome back. In good faith. Part of your research is not only about funerals, but also about hospice, which is a program that has blessed so many families. In those times of hospice, as people are approaching clearly, undeniably, you might say, end of their mortal existence, suddenly it it is not academic, but it becomes 
It could be clinical. It could be very spiritual. The hospice program started, it was both medical, getting a better control over pain, but also social, having people live with within a network of real relationships rather than sent off to a hospital, and also spiritual. Hospice is now a worldwide program. It shows up in such different ways in so many different cultures. And to me, at least, the American way of doing hospice is focused on pain relief and social support. And yes, there is some idea that this is a spiritual, that there is some spiritual dimension to dying, but it's not very well articulated or really worked out. That is partially because the whole question of what counts as spiritual is so up in the air and fuzzy. Um, (laughs) But hospice in rural Uganda is an example. There were no hospitals in many of the areas. The uh, nobody who, I mean, there was no medical care at all, and people died of cancer or AIDS at one point with no medical assistance, intervention, anything. Hospice palliative care was the cheapest way to do something, and you could train people to give out uh, liquid morphine. But the hospice program also discovered that many people had houses too small for a person to lie down comfortably in them. So they remodeled the house and gave mattresses out. What a small thing, but what a huge difference that can make. Yeah, it's just incredible what hospice can mean in an environment where it's not a supplement to conventional healthcare hospitalization. It's the only, the only program available. And I was very struck and moved in reading about how a hospice team works in that setting. And even the fact that Uganda being a a country where there's Christians and Muslims, and the hospice team was mostly Christians. They made sure to, when they prayed with the Muslims, they prayed slightly differently, but they prayed every time they visited anybody. Mm. And my sense of what hospice is then expanded my sense of how creative and important it is to provide what people really need beyond just the physical medical stuff. Although in Uganda, that was very, very important, and it is here too. I also have a good friend who for years was a hospice nurse. And I remember there was a point at which the average time spent in hospice was something like nine days. Mm, Just the very end. This is a program that was designed for the last six months of someone's life so that you had enough time to use the services, to reflect, to think, to just to get things together as part of dying. You've shared a lot of interesting cultural history with us today, but I do want to speak personally for a moment. Is it possible for you to express to me why you believe in God? Uh, Is it a spiritual sense or feeling? Is it experiences? What brought you to that point? I felt looking back, that God was pushing me, pulling me. I grew up in a very secular family, in a secular environment, and it's as if God was sort of had in mind all along some way of preparing me and my interest as an academic in the study of religion was part of that. I know for many people, there's a big discrepancy and and disagreement between the study about religion and world religions versus the actual practice of religion. 
And I think that in my case, at least, that that wasn't the case. And God working in my life included really learning the depth and mystery that lies behind practices, doctrines, and just this sense of the reality of, in my case, certainly the reality of Jesus. Many of the people that I met early, I mean, that was in the environment that I was converted within, focused on the Bible, and I am big on the Bible. But I guess I realized, too, that the Bible doesn't work as like a textbook. It certainly isn't like a textbook of doctrine or something. But the analogy that I came up with, and this sounds really strange, is my first book as a kid was called Pat the Bunny. And each page has a text and a drawing, and there's something the kid can do. Pat the Bunny is a picture of a rabbit with a white cotton patch, and the kid pat. Uh, Field Daddy's Whiskers is a piece of sandpaper. But the child is actually engaged with the book at this very tactile level and with metaphor. I really think the Bible works a lot more like at the body. <laughs> I love it. I love that. <laughs> and, and a lot more than many of the ways it's used, which is as more like a textbook kind of, using it as if it were a kind of recipe book. But the path the bunny means that you can, in some ways, link up at the deepest, most direct level possible with God. But it comes through imagery, metaphors, songs, and all the ways that we interrelate with things that are imaginative. That's Dr. Lucy Bregman, who until her recent retirement taught at Temple University's religion department and had the assignment of teaching death and dying and really got into studying this and what worked and what sparked, I guess, the interest in college students. One of the things I liked about this conversation is that she's teaching death and dying to students and referring to children's books to cope with that maybe or just explore it in a different light. And she talks about Pat the Bunny, which I personally have never read, but she talks about how it's experiential for her and how it's kind of metaphorical and how her religious experience comes from songs and imagery. She has this critique that some of us use the Bible as like an instruction manual. Right. I think there are times where it can be appropriate, but I think we need to experience our own lives, not just from an instruction manual, but for ourselves, learn for ourselves and not just from other people. And I think the Bible offers us examples of how other people have met God and known God and had God in their lives. And they're all different stories. I think that's what's the best thing about the Bible. It's a bunch of broken people really not doing the greatest, <laughs> mm -hmm. but trying to figure it out. And God is willing to work with them, right? That's and, why it's so relatable, right? None yeah. of us are perfect. We're all broken and going through life, but... We can find ways through them to find peace and reassurance. Yeah. So I have my own idea about how a funeral should be, and I have even spent a few minutes thinking about how I want mine to be. Oh, Steve. Someday, eventually. <laughs> okay. And so the whole idea that there's a right way to do it really has changed. And I had no idea how much that had changed because I don't really want to have my funeral be, okay, he's dead and you will be too. <laughs> Well, what do you think about her idea that she presents of the major story and the minor story? The major story being Jesus Christ, the resurrection, and the minor story, Steve Cap Perry, baritone. Poor Steve is dead. <laughs> so, uh, to quote Rogers and Hammerstein, sort of. So, yeah, what's the big story? What's the little story? So, it used to be your death is imminent. Now, it's more of uh, let's celebrate the life of the departed. 
But she's saying, and I love that this comes from a late-in-life conversion, later in life, because I think the thing that both she and our next guest, Howard Wettstein, have in common is they, they had a tradition growing up, but in his case, he leaves it for 20 years. In her case, uh, it's not as important to her, or she doesn't really consider herself particularly religious until getting into the study of this. Both of them are brought to faith by study, secular study. Yeah, we don't often think of that story, do we? I think we often say, oh, people who are academics uh, have lost touch with God in some way, but this is the opposite trajectory, which I love. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, as we'll hear with uh, Howard Wetstein, he really surprises some of his students who are committed Muslims that he talks about philosophy bringing him to faith because they had either grown up thinking or absorbed or been taught that that was not a way to get to faith. In fact, that it would lead you away from. Yeah. I really love the Wetstein interview because, one, he is an academic and he reaches for all these readings in his brain, right? He's ready to tell you and quote all these different things. It makes me want to compile a bibliography to read later. (laughs) But one of the things he does do is he talks about the story of Job in a way that I f- find is really meaningful. Because um, this can be a really discomforting, unhappy story for some of us. Like, I, I, this wasn't fair how this worked out. Yeah, or, I mean, I'm always on the side of the people who die in the story of Job. I don't know about anybody else. but <laughs> yeah, His wife, his like, kids, his, his, his All of his kids, they just are killed off, and then in the end, he gets some new ones. And that, to me, has always felt kind of cold, right? Wait a minute. Are they all so easily replaceable? Yeah. But he really focuses on the experience of Job, his grief and anger, and his relationship with God. And that was really helpful for me to hear. And he finds some interesting views of what a ritual can do. For instance, the prayer that you say when a loved one has died, the Kaddish, and How saying that more than once and repeating as it's done for a while really helped him draw close to the person he had lost. Yeah. I like how he talked about prayer as a group. He said he went to a synagogue in Jerusalem and he prayed with a bunch of different people and they were praying for different things. But just the act of praying side by side was kind of empowering for him. And I liked that. Mm. We're going to listen to Howard Wettstein. He may sound familiar to you before because he was in our ritual episode. He's a professor of philosophy at UC Riverside and chair of the philosophy department there. I was in a rabbinical program early in my life, right after college. I had taken Jewish studies. It really worked for me. I really loved the study and the practice and the community. And I thought I was going to be a clergy person, not so much in a uh, synagogue, but in the teaching context. And then I had a kind of crisis of faith. And I left I left religious life for about 25 years um, and entered graduate school in philosophy, which was a, a bit of a strange transition because I didn't like graduate school. It wasn't didn't have the warmth and support of the community in the way that I had had it as an undergraduate. So graduate school wasn't fun, but I love philosophy. I love thinking about these questions. And I started thinking about them because of religion. That is to say, religious life really grabbed me. But what about belief in God? Should we believe there is such a thing? And how do we know that? And what counts as evidence? And that led to philosophy. Um, So I spent 25 years teaching philosophy without a religious orientation. So those questions always mattered to me a lot. And at a certain point, I had a religious turning in my life, but it was a lot by way of philosophy. I mean, they came together in ways that since then, they'd never been separate. I gave a a series of lectures at a Palestinian university in East Jerusalem, because I go to Israel a lot to do work and to talk to people and to study. And the kids who were Orthodox Muslim was stunned that I came back to religion by way of philosophy. They thought of the two as opposed. Isn't philosophy usually opposed to religion? My point was not for me. Not for me. I think you're the perfect person to pose this question too, because 
you've been in the community and know it well enough to, quote, speak the language natively, knowing it as a, a first language of faith, and then going elsewhere and then coming back to it later in life. Yes. In a short paper, Living in the Throes of Paradox, you quote William James that religion is largely a matter of the gut, surely not purely of the head. And some people would say, uh, well, that's giving up. <laughs> Think harder. <laughs> but, but you had some experience that caused you to leave, but then also that caused you to come back to practice. What was it you were looking for or that you experienced that was of the gut and not purely of the head? Uh, let me quote Santayana first because I can't resist this. In a book called Reason and Religion, he quotes Francis Bacon who said that a little philosophy moves a person away from God and a lot of philosophy brings him back. <laughs> and Santayana added that what he forgot to tell us was that the God you come back to is not quite the same as the one you left. That's a way overstating it because it is the same God, but it's... It, is it your understanding that has changed? Yeah, your so understanding radically changed. Let me explain this by way of the transition from the Bible, which I see as a non-philosophical work, to medieval theological philosophy, right? So the Bible talks a lot about faith. It uses the Hebrew word emunah, which I guess should be translated mostly as faith, I think, not belief. It's not about belief. You can't say in biblical Hebrew, I believe that God exists. There's no natural way to say that. God was like a piece of the furniture of the universe, and it wasn't controversial. It's like saying, I believe the weather exists. What are you, what are you talking about? The biblical way of doing these things has to do with faith, where faith is a kind of openness to God and a kind of uh, loyalty and sense of connection. As times moved on through Christianity and then Islam, religion became a theory of the world, a kind of philosophical theory of the world. Mm -hmm. And that's not the picture I have from the Bible. And it's the picture from the Bible that I feel most connected to. I feel deep connection to God, although I can't say I know what I'm talking about. It's not about existence exactly. That's the wrong idiom for it, I think. If we actually could explain it in words, maybe we would never have that feeling of awe. You might say there's two kinds of awe. There's a kind of awe that's really sort of curiosity about what's going on. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's remediable, if that's the right word, or mediable. I don't know what the right word is. But, you know, you learn something and then you know what's going on, Right. Now there's a kind of awe that has no remedy and you don't want it to have one. It's not as if if you learn more about God, you'd feel less awestruck. And Einstein, the more he learned about the world, the more he felt awestruck by the world. The whole idea of knowledge is misplaced here. I mean, Moses asked God, who should I say sent me? And the answer is, and now the answer gets tricky because in, in theological later developments, the answer is given a philosophical interpretation. But what it means really is, I will be what I will be, at least in this plain Hebrew. Mm -hmm. I will be what I will be. And a few sentences later, God says to Moses, tell him I will be sent you. And it feels to me like the first joke in the, uh, <laughs> in the Bible, right? It's a kind of rejection of the question, I feel like, rather than I mean, if you ask me, who are you? And I say, I am who I am, you know? <laughs> you know? Uh, I'm not giving you new information that's subject to philosophical analysis. Nothing you can write on a name tag. Right. There's another passage in which God says to Moses, no one can see my face and live. Which he says to Moses face to face. Face to face, right? That's very paradoxical. It's face to face, but no one can see my face. Right. When God is about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, he says, I can't do this without telling my loyal servant, Abraham, who has known me. And the word known is really interesting in Hebrew, as when you speak about Adam knowing his wife. So knowing is not always sexual, of course, but, it, but it's always intimate. Mm -hmm. So Abraham is his intimate, and he feels compelled to convey what's going to happen. So it's not knowledge, it's intimacy. 
It's not knowledge in the sense of cognitive articulation or something like that. When I think of, for me, the word ritual, it seems easy in something that might be repeated monthly, yearly, weekly, or every day, something that we might repeat some practice, that it would be so easy for it to become mundane and actually less meaningful or no more thought than breathing in and out. So what is it about practice that that you can do to maintain or create in something that is done over and over that sense of awe or of emotional or spiritual union or satisfaction? Or intimacy. Yes. 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 Repetition is a lost virtue. So when we say mourner's Kaddish, the practice is to say it when you've lost a loved one. And in certain services, it's said two or three times. And somehow the repetition is powerful. Uh, maybe I can explain why it's powerful by an interpretation that I learned about Mortis Kaddish when my mother died. It's a strange prayer because it's a glorification of God prayer, but it's said on the occasion of mourning. And how do those two go together, right? It doesn't say a word about the death of the loved one. Someone said, think of it as comforting God for his loss. That was very powerful for me when I lost a loved one and I felt like there's a tear in the universe. To be able to comfort God for his loss is very powerful. And the fact that it's repeated three times in 15 minutes is somehow even sweeter. It's like kissing a loved one several times. But the loss of my mother was very dramatic for me. I wasn't very close to her, and I thought it would not be such a big, a cataclysmic occurrence when it happened. And then it was terrible in ways I couldn't have anticipated. I think when you don't have such a great relationship, sometimes it's harder when you lose someone. And I was just coming back to religious life and thinking about meaning and God and and somehow it became a very important transitional period in my life. It was so powerful that at times I felt guilty because I was taking advantage of my mother's death to get closer to God. Interesting. Yeah. I suppose on the flip side of that, you could say God was taking advantage of your mother's death to get close to you. You could say that. It's interesting that I didn't say it, and I don't think of it that way, but it's a you're absolutely right. You could have said that. There's a folk fable that you refer to that this was quite a powerful image to me. And perhaps this is actual history concerning inmates of an Auschwitz concentration camp that the story says they decide to put God on trial for crimes against humanity. God's found guilty, and then they go off to prayers. In other words, they didn't cut it off because of how they felt about God even, which I wonder if you'd say more about that. Yeah, that's so interesting. So there's a film called The uh, The Trial of God. And I think it's is also an Elie Wiesel book about this by the same name. That story is an entree into Jewish culture and Jewish life. And if it doesn't make any sense, I get it, that it <laughs> might not, right? So these people who had suffered mightily, they don't know what to think about God. They're angry. They're angry with God, maybe. They're angry with the world. They're angry with people. And, you know, it's like, no matter what you've done, I don't understand it, but I'm still in love, you know, whether I like it or not. <laughs> you know, I'm still in love. Would you say that the practice of religious life is something that connects you to culture, connects you to God, connects you to other people? All of the above. Mm -hmm. all, the, all of the above. There's something about prayer in a community that's very powerful. Um, now, it depends on the community. It's often the case that people go to church or synagogue and don't feel much, and that there are a lot of people that it just doesn't matter. It's not really working for them. It's too conventional. And I found that praying alone at home sometimes is the most powerful way for me. But then there was a time I was in Jerusalem in a packed room of people who were praying. And I had the feeling that we were praying as one. And it was so powerful. 
So community is very interesting in this context. What made it feel that you were suddenly one doing that? Was it the people you were with? or I didn't know them. I didn't know them. Mm-hmm. Just a, a bunch of people who are all obviously praying with passion. There's another one like this. There's a synagogue in Jerusalem called Yakar, which is a particularly amazing place. And the rabbi who passed away some years ago uh, was very musical in his spirituality. And he'd get the room, like a few hundred people in a small room, singing on a Friday night, singing with passion. And there are times I would bring somebody with me to witness this. The person didn't have to be a believer, didn't have to be involved, but they would just be so moved by the, the sense in the room. And there was a time I turned around and looked at them, the people, and said, what are they all feeling? Probably something different. They were, they were reaching for God. And it may mean something different to each of them, no idea, but it was really quite an experience. When I've been able to go to Jerusalem and gone on Friday night down to the Western Wall, to yeah. tell, I can't help but think of all the connection to history, that the singing, uh, the welcoming of the Sabbath is it's I can tell it's something beyond my understanding because I'm not in that culture, but it's something that I even on the outside, it's like holding your hands up and warming yourself by a fire. You feel yeah. something. This is in good faith. We'll be right back. Welcome back to In Good Faith. So we find a lot of comfort from scriptures. The Hebrew Bible has, of course, a creation account. It gives the law and how to live. And then there are people that we emulate, even with their humanity. People like Gideon, who was told to save the children of Israel, and yet he still sort of wanted a sign, and then another sign. And God was okay with that. He walked him through that. But there are some very problematic stories. As I've read some of your writings, you talk about the difficulties in the story of Abraham being called to sacrifice his son Isaac. He doesn't have to in the end, and yet it's problematic to lots of us that he was willing to. And we think maybe he should have failed that test. And then there's Job, who just outright loses everything. Those two stories in the Bible are so troubling that Abraham would be asked to kill his child. And the attempt to make it kosher, so to speak, leave me absolutely cold. Okay, there's something absolutely horrible about it. So I needed to come to terms with it somehow. And the other thing I needed to come to terms with is just more generally evil. I mean, the world is absolutely exquisite, but it's also horrible. And those are both true. And how do you deal with the horrible part exactly? And Job seems the book of the Bible that takes this quite seriously. So I've spent a lot of time thinking about Job. It's just an amazing, amazing work. And as with the Abraham story, the commentaries that try to make bring it back into line with what we think religion's all about leave me cold. I, I think it's not a book that's supposed to be like that. So the book starts with these couple of chapters, Job I'm talking about, with God and some character who in Hebrew is called Satan, which is translated as Satan, but it's not, the, it's not the Satan devil character. It's a different character. It's not like a heavenly accusing attorney, you know, a <laughs> prosecuting attorney. He wanders the earth and tries to see who's up to what, right? And the whole thing feels mythological. God and he, and they make a bet and he's, And the first two chapters are prose, and then the heart of the book is all poetry, and it's extremely sublime poetry. It's really amazing poetry. And then the last chapter again becomes prose. And there are scholarly suggestions that maybe these last, the front and the end, the beginning and the end were added on or something, and that maybe the the core of the story is the poetry that maybe existed since very ancient times. So the core of the story is about this guy who's lost everything and his friends come and sit with him for seven days on the ground, which is the Jewish practice. Probably it takes its origin from this maybe 
of sitting where the mourner, it's called sitting Shiva, where you sit for seven days and you, the mourner sits for seven days, not, not supposed to go out of the house. His needs are taken care of and friends come to comfort him. And Job's friends knew to sit with him and let him lead the discussion. It's very beautiful. But then at the end of the seven days, Job explodes in a way that offends them. And then there's this whole thing in the book of the more angry they get at Job's anger, the more angry he gets. And it it really gets to be very uh, rancorous. At a certain point when Job hits bottom, he's alone in the world. His friends aren't even with him. His wife isn't with him. His children are gone. And he's sitting on a pile of ashes, scratching his diseased skin with a piece of pottery, God shows up, which is really amazing. I feel like God shows up at the great times and the low times. It's very hard on a Tuesday afternoon. (laughs) Right? So God shows up. And then there's this thing called the speech from the whirlwind. And it's very controversial how to translate it because the key sentences in Hebrew can go in different ways. One kind of translation at the end has Job repenting. Now, given the book, what did he repent for? He did very little. God said he was the most righteous man on earth. What is going on, right? And then he gets all his stuff back. And it sounds like sounds like a power play, and then he gives in, and it's good. If that's what the book is about, it's not good for me. <laughs> so if you read the speech from God, it's really astounding. First of all, uh, there's a great scholar of the Bi- of Hebrew in the Bible who says that this is the most sublime Hebrew poetry of all time. And God becomes a poet, which is a bit self-interesting. In my imagination, what he does is he takes Job by the hand to the top of the mountain and says, let me tell you what it looks like for me, my creation. And he expresses awe and love. He talks about it being exquisite and awful all at once. This goes on and on. And if you get caught up in it, there's a translation that isn't necessarily 100% accurate, but it's very beautiful by Stephen Mitchell. It's a little paperback called The Book of Job, and I use it with students. By the end, Job is overwhelmed because as awful as his life is at the moment, look at this opportunity he had to see the world from God's point of view. And it reminds me of sort of Spinoza talk about seeing the world under the aspect of eternity. And he's moved and astounded. And the sentence that is sometimes translated as repenting seems to me means something else. It's something like, I'm comforted. The big message for me is something like God's world is astounding, astound, awful, and exquisite, and astounding. And the translator who translated this uh, in his introduction, which is really worthwhile, says something like, there's a kind of gratitude for being part of the holy game Job must feel. That was Dr. Howard Wettstein speaking to us from his home in California. So I have to say one of my very favorite things is when I am taught to see something that I've seen a lot in a new way. Uh, I had a friend call this the veil of familiarity. Oh, nice. That you hear a particular phrase so often it almost stops having meaning. Or you just think, yeah, I know what that means without actually thinking about what it means. So to have a new way, for instance, to look at the story of Job is, I think, quite enlightening and quite instructional. And I think you like that too, Heather. Oh, I love this. And part of it is I love when I can hear from people different interpretations or different translations. And just that deep dive into little phrases, oh, it just, I get really excited about that kind of stuff. So this idea that we've often interpreted the end of Job as Job saying, I'm sorry, God, that I got angry and upset over my whole life being destroyed. (laughs) Which I just feel like, why did I think it would be normal to apologize for that kind of thing? Instead, it's, oh, God, thank you for comforting me by showing me the grand vision of this world. And I understand that the world is both terrible and exquisite, and uh, I want to be a part of it. That, to me, is just gorgeous stuff. So most of the time, we don't want it to be terrible. Right. (laughs) 
or we think this terribleness is the exception from how things should be. And once they're back on track to goodness and happiness, but it really is a, a, a big balancing act. And I do take comfort from both of our guests today, Lucy Bregman and Howard Wetstein, talking about that we don't do this alone. Everything from Lucy talking about the importance of hospice and walking people through what's eventually coming to him talking about the solace that you talked about, Leah, of praying with other people, even if it was for different things. Well, I think along with what Heather said, Job wasn't just acknowledging that he saw the whole lens, but he was grateful for it. That's what Howie pointed out, that he was grateful to see the world as God sees it. And I think that's an interesting perspective we can take into all of our own lives and be grateful for the good and the bad. You guys will notice that she just referred to him as Howie. That's Sorry. that's my influence. <laughs> Dr. Wetstein. <laughs> They're Howie and Lucy to us, folks. They're yes. Howie and Lucy to us. So his, his most recent book is called The Significance of Religious Experience. And maybe that's as different for different as there are different people. And that's why I love having conversations like we had today that we have all the time on In Good Faith to, to hear somebody else's experience and perspective, in some cases with dealing with death, in some cases with dealing with a difficult passage of Scripture, and just knowing that other folks besides me are engaged in the wrestle. Heather, Leah, thank you so much for this discussion. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Steve. Many thanks to Dr. Lucy Bregman and Dr. Howard Wetstein for speaking with us today. This episode was produced and edited by Heather Bigley, with special help from Leah King and Peter Ellison. Our production team includes Austin Ball, Katarina Martinik, and Tanya Lockett. Our sound designers include Daniel Phillips and Dallin Jepson. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If you enjoy the show, be sure and leave a comment or a review or share the episode with a friend. Those things all help spread the word. Find us on Twitter at InGoodFaithPod and on Instagram and Facebook at InGoodFaithPodcast. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon right here in Good Faith.